We have spent, the, this is the third week on the, uh, one of those great passages in all the Bible, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and uh, this is our third and final week on this passage, and I'm going to read not just our passage today, which is 11 through 14, but I'm going to begin in verse 3 so you can keep the whole thing in the sweep of flow. All right, beginning in verse 3, blessed be the, Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. And now our passage, in Him we have been chosen as God's inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in, the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until God redeems His possession to the praise of His glory. Amen. Please be seated. One of the majestic, great, God-exalting, Christ-centered passages in all the Bible, themes focusing on the sovereign grace of God, focusing on that, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Christ, that we have, present tense, those blessings, that everything that God does for us is in Christ, through Christ, because we're joined to Christ, immersed in Christ. There are three movements to the passage. The first verses orbit around the Father, then the next section around the Son, and then the, section, uh, the last section around the Spirit. Each one of those sections ends with either the words, to the praise of His glory, or something similar. So right from the outset, with a no overview, God underscores that everything that He does ultimately is for the praise of His glory. That is the revelation of His greatness, His, His majesty, His beauty, His, 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 His splendor to the praise of His glory. Now, if all that God does is for His glory, then all that we, should, we do should be for His glory. Now, what does that mean? If it's not just churchy uh, Christian talk on a Sunday morning, what does that mean that we live to His glory? Well, 1 Corinthians 10.31 Paul said, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So this does not mean that we simply read the Bible or give money or, or uh, go to church for His glory, but every single thing that we do in life, however mundane. If you wash dishes today after uh, lunch, do it to His glory. Some of you have found a lot of drudgery in your work. Whether or not that is work at your job, housework, homework, uh, taking care of kids' work, schoolwork, uh, you, find, you have found drudgery in your work. Well, the key, the Bible says, we're going to come to that later, 
to transform your work into worship is to do it as an act of worship for God. Just like Brother Lawrence, Lord, I, I, I fry these eggs in a pan for your glory. I, some of us, you know, if we could have another shot at school, we would hopefully study for the glory of God. Every single thing that we do. A few years ago, uh, Gail and I were in Germany to go to Teen Street. And Josh and Debs Walker, sitting right back there, leads this uh, incredible convocation of, of uh, thousands of uh, young people in Europe and uh, in, in Germany. It's just amazing sort of thing. Well, on our way from Frankfurt to northern Germany, we took a stop by the little quaint German town called Eisenach that we'd never been to. And the reason we visited Eisenach is because that is the place where Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 1500s, he hid out from a, for a year from the folks who were out for his life. And he kind of pretended he was the gardener there, and he kind of holed up in the castle. And during that year, he did several things, including translate the New Testament from Latin into German, or actually from Greek into German, giving the German people their version of the King James Bible. It became the equivalent. Later, he did the Old Testament. Well, while we were visiting uh, that castle in Eisenach, uh, when we first came into the town, to my surprise, we learned that something else big had happened in Eisenach. This was the, this was the birthplace of Johann Sebastian Bach. Now, some of you know a lot more about music than me, but you, you know that Bach was one of the great composers in history. In fact, there are brides that still enter to his music, Hey Zoo, Joy of Man's Desiring, at weddings today. It just had an incredible, incredible impact. Well, the, the interesting thing about Bach was that he was a devoted follower of Jesus. Had a large theological library. Studied, knew the Bible. Well, when he sat down at his desk to write music, he would put two initials in the upper right-hand corner. Latin initials, J.J., uh, standing for Jesu Juva. Jesus, help. So he actually kind of writes his brief prayer at the top of the paper before he writes the music. Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. And then when he writes that score, writes that composition, at the bottom of his paper, he always wrote, we have copies of this, we, he always wrote three more Latin initials. Some of you music students know what they were. S D. G, sole Deo Gloria, only the God be the glory. This was Bach's perspective, and it became the rallying cry of the Reformation in the 1500s, and it was the passion of his life. Now, could it be said of you and me that the passion of your life was God's honor, not your honor? You know, there's an extensive human tendency for us to go through life wanting to make a name for ourselves. You don't have to make a name. You are here to exalt a name, the name of Jesus. And what if that just got deep in your heart, that everything you did at work, in conversation, in play, in everything, it was for the glory of God, to the glory of God. Now, this is the call in Ephesians 1. Everything we do is to the praise of His glory. Some of you are familiar with the Westminster Catechism written centuries ago to teach children. 
about God. And the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And they answer it, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's interesting, they put them together. The chief end, singular, of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever because if you live for God's glory, you will enjoy Him. You won't enjoy real joy, you live for God's glory. It is the chief purpose of you being on the planet. Jonathan Edwards, leading uh, theologian in the 1700s, had these, uh, he, he sat down once and he wrote out about a hundred uh, decisions that he was making. He'd write resolved. One of those, maybe the first one, I forget, he said resolved that all men should live for the glory of God. And then after that he said resolved second, that whether others do or not, I will. And that's got to be our spirit. I don't care if others around you or not are oblivious to God, I'm going to live for God's glory. And that's true of folks in the church. I don't care if people around me are living for themselves or for God, I'm going to live for the glory of God. Church, this passage and all the scriptures call you to get off of the, of the, the, the treadmill of making a name and get on the, the, the platform of exalting a name. Exalting the name of Jesus. That's what we're called to, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. Now, that's really where it ends. Let me unpack a little bit to get there. In verse 11, in Him we have been chosen. In Christ, 11 times in the passage, 42 times in the book. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Him, in whom. Uh, Four times in our four verses all through the book, because God has never done one good thing for you, never done one thing for you that is not uh, done in Christ and, or apart from Christ, everything He does, because Jesus Christ made it possible for you to have a relationship with God when He died on the cross for our sins. Everything is in Christ. In Him we have been chosen as God's inheritance. Let me say a word about uh, the word inheritance, because it is one of those ambiguous terms and it can be taken a couple of ways. Now, if I talk to uh, the people on the front row and I use the term you, it wouldn't be clear if I was just talking about you, Gail, or you folks, because the English word you can be ambiguous, singular or plural. That's why a much better term is the southern term y'all, <laughs> which is more clear. Every language has ambiguity in some of the terms. And this term in the Greek language, it's not clear. Is that referring to what we possess or what God possesses, that we are the possession or we, we possess something? Um, it's true of the word inheritance in 11, and it's true, true of the word possession down in verse 14. And, and the translations vary a little bit, and there's, you know, several arguments. Well, let me just say, first of all, it doesn't really matter. Both are true. You have an inheritance. All the riches of God you inherit. But do you know that the Bible says that you are, you are God's inheritance? You know, God doesn't inherit a bunch of money in a bank account. He doesn't need that. He doesn't inherit a ranch or a, a family heirloom. He wants to inherit blood-bought people that He sent His Son to die for, you and me. You are God's treasured inheritance. You are. And I think the preponderance of the evidence goes... Uh, with those versions who translate this 
because of the context, several reasons, as we are God's inheritance, we are God's possession. Both are true, but I think the evidence in this, that's what the point is. So in Him we have been chosen as God's inheritance. You are God's treasured inheritance. We have We are God's possession, down in verse 14. We are God's treasured possession. In other words, during this passage in which he is uh, over and over communicating who you are in Christ, one of those truths, you are the people of God. You belong to him. You are his inheritance. You are his people. You are his possession, over and over. In the Old Testament, we see this same concept. For example, in Exodus chapter 19, all of us who were in that study of Exodus, we know that 20 is the giving of the law, 19 is up on Sinai when God speaks to the people and tells them who they are. And in Exodus 19, 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. When the old The Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. That same Greek term was used right here as it is in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1.14. Treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's who you are. Or in Deuteronomy 7, even stronger. In fact, this passage is so much overlap with Ephesians 1. Notice what God says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. That's our term. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. And the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So much of that is language is used in Ephesians 1. God chose you not because you were so smart or the greatest or anything else, but just because He loves you. And He set His love upon you just because. Just like an adopted child. Uh, the first service, the Spindler family was here. They've adopted a little girl from, from uh, China. And if you go to an orphanage in China and adopt a, choose a child, the parents choose the child. God chooses you just because he loves you. One more, Deuteronomy 32, 9, and now the word inheritance. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. So in the Old Testament, the people of Israel will consider the inheritance of God, the possession of God. In the New Testament, it's the church, the international gathering, Jews and Gentiles of redeemed people by God. We are, we are God's people. We are his treasured possession. Now, now think about if in my family, uh, what if we had a 300-year-old Bible that had been in the family for 300 years? We don't have that, but what if we did? And what if my dad gave it to me as the pastor in the family? Do you think that I would treasure that 300-year-old Bible? Yes, I would. I'd treasure it. Friends, God treasures you. So much more than we could ever treasure anything. You are his treasured possession. See yourself that way. See yourself that way. 
his treasured possession. Not only are you treasured, but you are chosen by God. In verse 11, in him we have been chosen as God's inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel, decision-making of his will. Five terms emphasizing God chose, not we. The only reason we choose is because God first chose us over and over and over. He could hardly be more emphatic. And earlier in verses 4 and 5, same thing. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He, prede- in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will over and over again. You know, um, those of you who have been with me these last three weeks, you, you, you have been... Uh, flooded with teaching on the sovereign grace of God. And some of you are thinking, that's about enough, Jeff. We got this now. We can move on. Well, we are moving on next week. But it is true that Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, is one of the two strongest passages in all the Bible on the sovereignty of God. Just over and over emphasize it. The other one, ironically, is Romans 9. And in my, if you get my daily devotionals, I'm working through the, the book of Romans. And just so happens at the same time, I'm on Romans 9. So we're really living in the sovereignty of God. Those are the two key passages. Now, let me be quick to add, as I have in times past, that does not mean that we, we do not have human responsibility to believe, to obey God all over and over and over. The Bible, God says to you, believe, believe, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So there is both the sovereignty of God and responsibility of man. And we cannot, with our puny little minds, put those together, but no problem for God. He's got it. He's got it. The Bible teaches both. We believe them both completely. Now, let me be clear about something. If you are not a Christian, the question for you in the Bible is never, are you one of God's elect? Never is that the issue. Always the issue is, have you trusted Christ? Will you trust Christ? When the Philippian jailer asked Paul, you know, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So your responsibility is believe. Now, if you do that, if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, and maybe you're here this morning and you've never done that, and how you get into heaven, how you, how you have a life eternal is simply to put your trust, your belief in a Savior to save you because you can't do it yourself. And if you do that, then in retrospect, you could look back and say, well, it was because God in His mercy gave me the faith to believe. Same with evangelism. You know, maybe with all this teaching on election, you're thinking, well, you know, what about my top five over there? You know, man, how do I know if they're elect or not? Well, you don't know and you won't know unless they trust Jesus as Savior. So the question for you is never, you know, find out if they're elect or not. The question, the issue is be Christ's witness and share your faith with them. And if they put their trust in Christ, then you can know in retrospect, yes, it's because God gave them faith. So both are taught completely. Now, human responsibility will be taught just in a couple of minutes, a couple of moments, as we'll see. But our culture and 90% of the church is so man-centered, man-focused, it's a little bit difficult to fully embrace the God-centeredness of the Bible, but it's all through it. It's all through it. For example, just think about the Lord's Prayer that we pray each week here. Think about those 
first three petitions involving God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. Before we get to our daily bread, our protection, our forgiveness, we start with God. The whole Bible from start to end is all about God. He is the source and He is the end of everything. So how do we become God's people? That's the basic point so far. How do we become God's people? Well, we saw it. We saw it that it is because God chose us. It is because of God's grace. God's grace. Well, why did we become God's people? Why did God make us God's people? Well, we've seen that too before. It's for His glory. It's for His glory. It begins in the grace of God, and it ends in the glory of God. It is from God, and it is to God. It is all about God. It is none about us. We are not the hero of the story. It is all about God. S-D-G. Sola Deo Gloria. Begins and ends with God. All righty. Paul talks about Jews and Gentiles in the passage. It's subtle, but it's there. In verse 11, in him we, we Jews, have been chosen as God's inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, Jews, who were the first to hope in Christ, remember to the Jews first, then to the Greeks, we, Jews, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Then he turns to Gentiles, in him you also, you Gentiles also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This applies, he's saying, to every single person. And what does he say here? That when you heard the word of truth, you Christians in Ephesus, what did you do? You believed in Jesus. And that is the responsibility of every single person, to believe in Jesus. That is how we get in the kingdom. It's not by our works. We can never be good enough. We've already got tons of sin, but only by trusting a Savior who redeems us and takes us to heaven. You were, you were sealed when you believed in Jesus Christ. Verse, verse 13, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God, Jesus specifically, promised the Spirit is going to come upon you. He's going to come upon you. He's promised. And when when, when they believed, the Spirit came upon them. And it says He is their guarantee of our inheritance until God redeems His possession. Now, this seal, that's the third great thing in the passage. God treasures us. God chooses us. And now God seals us with His Spirit. Now, most of us are a little bit familiar with the ancient world that with special documents, a king or an official might take his ring with a special signet or symbol on it and put a little dab of um, hot wax on the document and then press his ring in and to seal it. And that seal meant that the messenger or anyone else except the recipient could not open that letter. It meant that the, the king is the one who owns it and sent it. And it meant nobody else better mess with it. You know, we know that from our Texas history. You know, think about the King Ranch in the 1860s, for example. They had this running W brand. And they branded, no doubt, thousands and thousands of cattle. Now, every time they put that running W brand on the flank of the bull, 
that meant two things, the same two things. First of all, it meant that the owner was the king ranch. And secondly, it meant to you, all you cattle rustlers out there, don't mess with that bull because that belongs to us. It, it meant ownership and it meant protection. Do you know that God takes up this language from the ancient world, from just about every culture, and says, when you become a believer, you are not on your own to, to really try real hard and toe the line the rest of the day. Oh, no, I have already settled things. I am sealing you right then and there. And I will brand you on your soul, not with a tattoo that we tend to wear around, but on your soul by the Spirit of God. And when He seals you, that means two things. You belong to God. You are God's. And the second thing, all of you thieves and robbers out there, listen up, Satan. Don't mess with that person because he's mine. She's mine. That is the seal of the Spirit. Now, all through this passage, we see, perhaps better than anywhere in the Bible, all that Christ has done for us in love, all of it in Christ, and therefore who we really are, who we really are, our true identity. We've got to continue to remind ourselves in a performance-driven culture that so many of us kind of grow up steeped in, we've got to remind ourselves, I am not the measure of my career. I am not my sports achievements. I am not my failures. I'm not in any of those things. I belong to God who set his love upon me just because, just because. Last May or June, when we were in the Ephesians, I mean the Exodus 19 passage, I think it was, I talked about how one of my favorite movies are the Born series of movies and how the fifth one was coming out in July. And I'd already gone on the internet and watched the preview. And I loved the preview because the preview had these words in it. With Matt Damon, you know, as Jason Bourne saying this. And if you remember the premise, you know, he's got amnesia. He doesn't remember who he is, trying to find out who he is. And it had these words in the preview of the fifth, fifth movie. He says, I know who I am, I remember. I know who I am, I remember. And it just is a tragedy that so many of us believers do not know who we are. We do not remember who we are because we are listening to other voices, lying voices, accusing voices, condemning voices. And we have got to listen to God's voice through His Word and by His Spirit. This, in fact, is who you are. read an article this week from a father had two daughters, now grown. And he said it's been their practice a long time that when they're ever nervous or afraid, that he has them say out loud the simple little line, I am a brave girl, or now I am a brave woman. And so that, you know, their little practice is when, they're, when one of them gets in that kind of a, of a fear thing, that he'll just say, just say it, say it, say it out loud, and he'll encourage them. I am a brave woman. Do you know that's a wise father? That we need to talk to ourselves at times to replace the lies that are in our head. And God has given us his truths. And we have got to remember who we are. And this is what we're going to do in the end. 
I'm going to ask us in a few moments to stand. And I have written 20 declarations about who we are in Christ, 20 truths. And I want us to, to, to see them, say them, and grab them. If I was a parent and I had children at home, if I had a do-over, I think we would have a little Jewish family tradition, and we'd go over these kind of statements. There's over and over, because I'd want my kids to grow up thinking, this is who I am. And, and I know I would need the same thing. And you might want to go to our website, download this list of 20 things, identity list, search identity list, put in your Bible, and maybe the next uh, month you want to just go over it and go over it. This is who you are. This is what God says. So if you'd stand with me, I'll read the blue letters. You read the black letters. We'll go, uh, no, we'll do that just reverse. Put them up there. Yeah, I got the first one. I got the black letters. You got the blue letters. Now, I really debated whether or not I would just read it all because this is why. I don't want you to worry about the logistics. Am I just staying up? I want you to be thinking about the truth and who you are. So don't worry about logistics. Soak in what God says to you and grab it. Okay? All I'll go first, and we'll read every other one. I have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's right. Read it slowly. I am complete in Christ. I am one of God's saints, one of His holy people. I am God's adopted, much-loved child. I am justified, made right with God. I have the Spirit of the living God inside me. I am God's own treasured possession. I belong to Him. I am a citizen of heaven, not earth. I am an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am under no condemnation. That's the truth of God. That's the truth of God. That's who you are. That's who you are. Know it. Grasp it. Revel in it. Believe it. Pray with me. Lord, may it be that we would know the truth of who we are. May we be like Jason Bourne, Lord. I know who I am. I remember. Lord, help us to shut our ears to the lies of the world and the lies of the enemy. Help us, Lord. And dear friend, if you're in this room and you've never trusted Christ as Savior, He died for your sin. He waits on you. He loves you. He longs for you. Read the prayer. Jesus, come and save me. Come and save me. And He will. Lord God, help us to be a people who know we are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.